The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Disability Matters with your host, Joyce Bender. All comments, views, and opinions expressed on this show are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. Now the host of Disability Matters, here's Joyce Bender. Hey everyone, welcome to the show. I gotta tell you right now, I am so excited about this show today. You know, did you ever have a show? You were looking forward to the show, couldn't wait till the show. That's the show today because I have someone that I respect so much that I met years ago, immediately had an affinity of spirits, truly a national disability rights, civil rights advocate, and the real deal. That's how I would describe Chris Griffin, the executive director of the Disability Law Center of Massachusetts. Chris, welcome to the show. My choice, thank you. What a nice introduction. And it's the truth, as I know you know, and as all my listeners know. So they're going to be in for a big treat today. Um, I thought maybe we could start since, wow, now that we've been on the air for 12 years with such a listening audience, maybe you could tell some of our listeners uh, what made you decide to become an advocate. Because, you know, many people have disabilities, but they do not all decide to become an advocate. Yeah, well, it's probably not for everyone. I think, Joyce, I was born an advocate. I really do. I think I came out of my mother's womb uh, already uh, arguing and advocating for something. Uh, But I think what really made me um, become the advocate I am was probably when I acquired my own uh, disability. Uh, So when I became disabled in 1980, uh, it didn't take long for me to figure out that uh, things weren't accessible or as accessible as they should be, uh, people treated you differently, people looked at you differently, and I thought, oh, no, 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 this, um, this can't be. And I, I became an advocate for myself and people with disabilities almost immediately. <laughs> right. And, you know, I probably already know the answer to this, but isn't it amazing when you acquire a disability that suddenly people see you differently? Yeah, that was the, the, I think that was probably the most difficult part was that, you know, not all, but some people that you knew really well treated you differently. Mm-hmm. And that was, that was a real eye opener. And mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I spent a lot of time, uh, in the first year or two after becoming disabled, you know, trying to make sure that people knew I was the same. I maybe, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I had to get around a little bit differently. Than than uh, propelling with my uh, legs, but but that you know I really hadn't changed at all. Yeah, so, you were still yeah. the same person. Yeah, yeah. And you, Not, know, you know, for some people, they couldn't get past the the wheelchair or anything else. <laughs> right, and you know, here you are. You served as an Obama appointee. You served with the EEO uh, commission, 
you really, oh, you went on to become the assistant secretary of the Office of Personnel Management. I mean, wow, what a background. I'll bet that was very special then, but especially when you look back to think you were nominated by Senator Edward Kennedy. Yeah, he was, you know, he certainly played a big role in my life and the development of my career. Um, and, you know, it was it, it was always an honor to be um, asked by him to to do something, or when he expressed his confidence in in you to be able to do something. You know, he I w- was on the first ticket to work uh, commission uh, as a result of his him suggesting that I do that, as well as um, uh, going on the EOC as a commissioner. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you had his support behind you, you know, everyone paid attention. <laughs> and uh, he he just had a level of respect from, you know, both sides of the aisle. Right, right. And, uh, wow, what a great man. Yeah. Well, you yep. know, and you are with the Disability Rights Network uh, and specifically the Disability Law Center in Boston, mm-hmm. What is the Disability Rights Network, Chris? What is that? The network, it's interesting. The network is made up of a legally-based advocacy organization like the Disability Law Center in every state and territory. So there are 57 organizations that make up the Disability Rights Network. And we have a membership organization that's in Washington, D.C. that provides a lot of training and technical assistance and conferences for uh, the the staff of all of these organizations. And we provide free legal services for people with disabilities throughout the state that we are, you know, obligated to serve. Mm. And um, we're funded, I want to say about 75% by the federal government to do this work. And what's, I think, the most interesting part of, of the story of the creation of the Disability Rights Network is that we owe it somewhat all to Geraldo Rivera, who was a reporter, um, in the 70s in New York, and he exposed horrible conditions in a state-run institution for people with developmental disabilities. And once that was on TV and everyone saw what that was like, everyone started to talk about the that they had institutions like that in their states and Congress had hearings, and, and they created this network saying these folks need advocates to make sure that this doesn't happen again. Wow. Yeah, yeah, so Even in the disability history. community, I'll bet that's a trivial pursue question no one would get. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 would ever know, I talk about that. it. I make, I make it part of my orientation here for new employees. I show them a film clip of, of what that looked like, what that institution looked like when he snuck in there with a cameraman. And, wow, and, but isn't that amazing that it was him? Yeah, wow, is, that is really something. Well, thank you know, goodness the, he... On the 25th anniversary um, of the creation of this system, he uh, he did another film, and he interviewed one of the guys that actually got out of that institution as a result of that. Um, the name of the institution was Willowbrook, so on uh, Long Island in New York, and he did a film for that too, commemorating 25 years since his story ran. Yeah. 
speaking of institutions, as I'm sure you know, and as my listeners know, because many people have had very heated conversations with me about this issue, which is 14C, which, Chris, I want to talk to you about that, but I thought first, could you explain to our listeners not only what that is, but originally, which it was written years ago, the purpose was then? Well, 14C um, under the Department of Labor was, you know, really it was a program that was created uh, I want to say 1939. Is that, uh, I don't know if you know the exact date. Uh, uh, that sounds I'm not like sure. It. But it's somewhere around there, 1939, 1940. So this was a program that was developed to give people with di- disabilities uh, employment options which they, at that time, they didn't have at all. So Mm -hmm. this was a way of actually providing some level of employment training and employment options for people with disabilities. And what they created was a system by which the individual would not be, uh, it, it wouldn't be, I guess it really would be the employer wouldn't be required to pay the person minimum wage. Mm-hmm. You so were right, by the way, 1938. 38, uh, yeah. 1938, you were right. Yeah, so, I mean, that's, when the the, uh, that's when the Javits-Wagner-O'Day yep, Act exactly. was first passed. So, I mean, this just shows, wow, how long ago this was. And at the time, it probably was a very good idea. I mean, think about the context of the time. Roosevelt was president. His wife was active in things uh, related to, uh, you know, anybody who was, you know, in a a minority category at that time. Um, They were really conscious of the poverty that people endured and and how to get everybody working. And so, again, this at that time was probably uh, really a novel uh, idea and a and a real opportunity for people with disabilities at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, it, it's, it's now 2014, and we have the same program. So, you know, why, why it didn't evolve over time, I don't know. Uh, what I do know is that it's, uh, it's you know, it's disgraceful when you think about it that there's just this one group of people that have um, disabilities that we allow employers to um, pay them subminimum wage. And it's all based on a, sort of an assessment of what they can do and what they can't do. So let's say it's piecemeal work of some kind. They um, are compared, their productivity rate is compared to that of a person without a disability. So if I can put together 10 widgets an hour and you can only do five, they'll pay you 50% of, of the minimum wage, let's say. That's the premise of it. And employers and organizations that promote this are supposed to get 
waivers from, in, in Massachusetts, they have to get a federal waiver, but they also have to get a state waiver. And I think it's time we stop handing out the waivers entirely and started thinking more progressively about how to get people with disabilities into employment, you know, real jobs for real wages, as they say. Uh, but right now it still exists as, as a law, and uh, it, it's, it's, you know, it's not only about, you know, the, the sub-minimum wage payment. It's, it's also about a lot of times these are segregated settings. So sheltered workshops are, are a, you know, a creation under which they pay people sub-minimum wage. And the sheltered workshops are segregated places where they would have a whole group of people with uh, disabilities doing some work and getting paid whatever they were rated to be paid. So. Well, you know, let's think about that name, sheltered workshop. Yeah, yeah. That sort of says it all. Because, you know, when we talk to people about employment, uh, when I talk, for example, to parents, I'll say, you won't be here someday. You know, then what? So that's why I'm saying the name, Sheltered Workshop. And I read just the other day, actually it was in the Pittsburgh Tribune Review, about Vermont and what an outstanding job they're doing finding employment for people with disabilities that are in sheltered workshops. And one of the things that really impressed me so much is that they're getting these people jobs, 38%. They are getting them jobs. And as you know, Chris, that is the biggest complaint I hear by people afraid. You know, what's going to happen? What will they do? How, How can they have a job? But Vermont's an example of, yeah, they're getting yep. jobs. Yep. An example, you know, as you said, of, of uh, they ended sheltered workshops and their employment rates are higher. So we could all do this. Uh, it's just having the, the will and the desire to do it. I don't know if you saw, there was a New York Times article this Sunday that was just great. And it was about a couple who... Uh, no longer working in a sheltered workshop where they met in Rhode Island as a result of uh, Department of Justice and the Department of Labor closing down a particular sheltered workshop. And it went on to talk about they were getting married and talked about, you know, what they were both doing, but it also talked about other things related to the closing of that sheltered workshop, including a mother who opined originally that, you know, this would be terrible and now sees her loved one with a really good job, making money, and and you know, and happier, and and not in a segregated setting every day. Wow! So, hey, yeah. hey, Chris, hate to interrupt you, but I know we have a caller on the line, and then oh, we'll sure. go back to that. That only has a couple minutes. Go ahead, caller. Thank you, Joyce. It's Andy Imperato. Hi, Chris, and hi, Joyce. Hi, Andy. How Hello. You? I'm good. Let me just start by saying that um, you're two of my favorite people in the world, so I'm glad to have you both on the radio at the same time. Oh, and on Andy. the topic that that you guys are talking about, I guess a question I, I have for Chris, and Joyce, you may want to chime in on this too, is there have been divisions in the disability field, as you guys know, about how quickly we can move away from, from 14C, from sub-minimum uh-huh. wage, 
and from um, you know what used to be called shelter workshops and what some people are called center-based programs. And my question for for both of you is, how can we get more consensus and more unity in our field on this issue, and how can we find a way to move forward on this issue where most of the community, including most of the service providers, can support it? Well, that's the million-dollar question, isn't it? <laughs> um, Andy, I don't know. I, you know, we're not going to make everyone happy uh, with, uh, you know, how we move on this and how quickly we move because we have people that don't want it to end at all. They think it's great. Uh, all the way to, you know, people like me that are saying end it yesterday. So... Um, I don't know that we can actually find consensus and, and a happy medium for everybody. Uh, and I don't I do. know, Andy. I don't know <laughs> if this would work, but, like, if we could give, for example, the CEOs of some of the large service providers like National Epilepsy Foundation, UCP, um, all, you know, like a whole group of them, and and convene and be able to talk to them um, and then those that would, if they would, you know, endorse this or, or at least put out information, you know, examples of success, like what I was just talking about in Vermont. And I don't know if we could, but maybe something like that would help. Yeah, I think, that, you know, maybe look at what Vermont did, but I, I, <clears throat> I think that they... Um, didn't take too long of a, a period of time to close it down. Um, I think Massachusetts will be a good state to look at. Right now, a lot of uh, vendors who run sheltered workshops are in the process of closing them down and finding meaningful opportunities uh, for people uh, and you know that won't be going to the sheltered workshops anymore. Um, there's been quite a few that have actually already done it, and another group that are in the process of, of closing down. And, of course, there's a few holdouts there that don't want this to change whatsoever. So um, we might be, you know, over the next year or so, a good state to watch to see what it really took to do this. But it's like well, I, I think, Chris, one thing that, that I've heard Katie Nees from Easter Seals say, which makes sense to me, is that our job is to create a system where nobody would choose a sheltered workshop yeah. because yeah. everybody has a much better alternative. Yeah. So I, 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 think, I like that. Yeah. I like that as a frame because then I think that invites a conversation <laughs> about what do we need to do to create those alternatives. And I right, think one right. of the things we need to do is provide technical assistance to service providers to help them build out the community-based options. Yeah, and, and, that's, and I also think that's we need. Going on. That's what's going on here in Massachusetts right now. So uh, uh, Developmental Disability Services Agency is working closely with the vendors, providing them with funding and technical assistance to actually change the way they operate. And that's why a few of them have already stepped up and, and done it and uh, creating better options for people. And I think she, Katie is exactly right. We need to be able to show folks choices uh, and and let them decide where they would rather spend their time. And, you know, if you're shown good choices, you're not going to pick a sheltered workshop. 
And I know, Joyce, in Pittsburgh, you've got that 21 and ABLE project that's trying to create alternatives for young people as they're leaving school. So it seems like that's another model that could kind of show the way for other, other parts of the country. Yeah, and it's what you said, Andy. It's showing the people that there is, uh, you know, educating to eliminate fear, showing yeah. that there's something else you know, a better alternative. I know this one story they told is about a person that actually was nonverbal that was in a sheltered workshop, and after they, you know, got out and got employment, everything changed, including them no longer being nonverbal. And, you know, there are countless examples that they have given like that um, but, yeah, that's what it is. We have to, the only way we can eliminate fear is showing them there's something better, you know, showing them. Yeah. Because, oh. you know, a lot of people, sorry to say this, but they add fuel to the fire with parents or adults that are nervous about this. Yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of people that are either parents, guardians, you know, uh, probably more fearful than the person with a disability about, you know, what's going to happen, you know, to them. You know, the daily trip to the sheltered workshop is, you feel safe to them. It's a place where someone goes and, and you know, they, they don't have to worry about them. And so, you know, venturing into the community, doing different uh, jobs, things like that, you know, they, they worry about that. And, you know, I'm not saying that they shouldn't, but I'm saying that everybody with a disability has a right to have a real employment opportunity, and and the sheltered workshops aren't real employment opportunities. Well, but before I hang up, I just want to thank both of you for your leadership on creating real competitive integrated employment for people with all types of disabilities. The two of you have probably had as much impact on this field as anybody that I know. So thanks for your leadership and lead on. All right. Thank you, Andy. Great time. Andy, Andy, before you leave very quickly, can you tell everyone where you are now? Sure. Uh, And thanks for having me on your show when I started about a year ago. But I'm the head of the Association of University Centers on Disabilities. So we're a national network of university-based programs that are doing advocacy and training and research to try to help people with disabilities have full lives in the community, including competitive integrated employment. So we're certainly part of the solution here and and very much look forward to working with both of you to try to um, move away from segregation and move away from low wages and get more people into the middle class. Well, they are really lucky to have you. And listen, everyone, this is a great organization to follow. Yeah. Hey, Andy, yeah. thank you for calling in. Bye, no Andy. No problem. Take Bye. care. He is just so smart, isn't he? Yeah, he is. He's brilliant and someone who I have worked with uh, in a variety of different ways over the last 20-plus years, and uh, he's, he's just a great person to work with. He is. Hey, Chris, you know, AAPD sent out this release about uh, these psychiatric hospitals where they are still restraining 
people. I mean, it was terrible. This article yeah. was terrible. Yeah. Yeah. Almost like someone in solitary confinement yeah. for for days and days. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I, it was so hard for me to believe. When I read this, I thought, yeah. wow, how can this be happening? But I know you're involved with that also, but with schools. Yeah. Um, can, can you talk about that? Yeah, we... Uh, we over the past uh, probably seven or eight months, received a significant number of calls from parents from different school districts across Massachusetts uh, complaining about uh, their, either the restraints or the number of, of seclusions or timeouts, they like to call them, that their kids were experiencing. And we're talking about little kids. We're talking five, seven years old. Um, you know, we're not talking about kids with, you know, that really had the physical ability to to harm anyone. Um, these were, you know, little kids that, you know, might have some level of behavior problems. Wow, you got to be kidding. Oh, no, my God, that is so young. Yeah, no, that really young kids. And, and we became very alarmed and approached the uh, folks at the state level and just said, you know, the... The regulations we currently have are, allow for this to happen, and it's inappropriate. And they agreed, actually, and, and said that they were, you know, thinking about doing this anyway, updating the regs, but that, you know, a number of things were happening, including us coming to talk to them, that prompted them to do it a little bit sooner. And, in fact, NPR, just about the time we were talking to them, National Public Radio did a uh, report that uh, I guess they commissioned ProPublica to do, and you can see that online, about the use of restraint and seclusion in schools. And Massachusetts was ranked number 30. Number three. Number 30. 3-0. 3-0. So, yeah. Wow. So very low down on the list of, you know, of the uh, 50 states. And... Um, what it showed was that, you know, Massachusetts allowed for a number of things to occur, and including something called prone restraint. Uh, and it's long been known that any type of restraint that, re- that could impair your breathing, restricts breathing, such as a prone restraint when you're putting someone down on the floor with their face down and, you know, some pressure on the back or arms and legs from an adult uh, can can be deadly in a lot of cases, and in some cases cause uh, damage. So we, you know, we talked to the state and they agreed that we should prohibit the use of prone restraint. And one of the reasons they got such a low score in the review that NPR did, and they have put out regulations, much to their credit, regulations for a comment. Um, saying that they would prohibit prone restraint. So um, it's interesting. There's a lot of people, there's a lot of uh, private school providers that think uh, they should be able to have that tool in their toolbox. And I, I personally think that doesn't make sense to me. Why would you take that type of a risk uh, and use prone restraint that restricts breathing on a, on a child or an adult? You know, there's been deaths of kids and adults when this type of uh, restraint is used. So, 
So we're concerned about And one of those, huh? as you know, Chris, I have epilepsy. Yeah. And that is, that actually happened to someone that was older uh-huh. and was having a seizure at their home. And they restrained them uh, by almost hog-tying. I know this yeah. is hard to believe, but the person died. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, the Hartford Current um, in Connecticut did a series of articles in the 90s about, you know, chronicling the deaths that have occurred. Uh, almost everybody, Anderson Cooper's done a show on it. Uh, Dr. Phil's done a show on it. This is, we know nationally, we've known that this is a problem and this is not, you know, this is a, a type of restraint that should just never be used. No one should use this. This is the risk far outweighs the benefit that you would get from using this type of restraint. And well, may, uh, I, may I ask this? Why do they do it? Like, why do they think it is, you know, what is the reason they gave? give that it's okay to do that? Well, that's a good question. Um, they, the, the proponents of this say that this is a better way of restraining people, certain people in certain situations. And, you know, I, I think I think really what the benefit is, it allows you to easily control the person because now you, you know, they are face down. They're not able to, you know, they're less likely to bite or spit or anything like that. And it's an easier way of holding someone's uh, uh, hands and, 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 and legs down. So I think it's a, an easier way to actually control people. But it's problematic, uh, you know. If if even one person dies from this, you know, why would we keep doing it? Never mind, you know, the the huge numbers of people that have died have been injured using, you know, having this prone restraint done to them over the years. So, as you said, even one, yeah. even one, yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, you know, you know, I'm going to change the subject to something really wonderful, and that is Section 503 of the uh, Rehabilitation Act. Yeah. And I know also, Chris, that you know Secretary of Labor Tom Perez. Um, Actually, I was just, talking to him today. You're talking to him today. I was. I talked to him this morning about a couple of things. Wow. Well, isn't he awesome? Yeah, he is. He's he's just a great guy. Great guy and and um, really uh, a great friend of this community. And to have someone at that level, wow. Anyway, Chris, what do you think about Section 503 of the Rehab Act? I think 503 of the Rehab Act is absolutely fabulous. I am delighted that the... The president, this administration, has taken the initiative to issue regulations on this, and it is—it's re- really changing uh, the employment world for people with disabilities. It truly is. So I think you know this uh, from probably the calls you are getting, but I know even here in Massachusetts, when the Mass Rehab Commission held an event, a hiring event with federal contractors. 62 people were employed. 62 people got jobs in one day. Wow. Yeah. And this is, you know, that wouldn't have happened before. These these federal contractors are 
now obligated to hire more people with disabilities uh, if they want to get federal contracts. And I think it's great, and I wish every state would adopt a similar law. Yeah. Yeah, you know, you and I great. both know if we can get people jobs and get them in the workplace, you know, they'll, they'll pull their own weight and prove to be good employees, and, and we will change, you know, we will change the whole dynamic of how society views people with disabilities. It's not just even about employment. It's about when you're working side by side with somebody, whether they're from a different race or ethnicity or they have a disability, uh, you know, if it's a difference from, from you, you get to know them and you start realizing that everybody is the same. Everybody wants the same things in life. And people look at each other differently when they work side by side with somebody. So, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's more than changing net worth and self-worth. It's about changing society's view of how, um, how and what people with disabilities can accomplish. Right. And you know what's amazing is that this was first enacted by President Richard Nixon 41 years ago. I know, I know. That's a good trivia question, too. Yeah. <laughs> and you ask who signed it. It was yeah, Nixon. And, yeah, it is. And you know what? I have to say this about Chris. I've known Chris a long time. You cannot believe how many times she said to me, what about 503? What about 503? And I must tell you that when Tony Quello took, called and told me this has happened, you know, the final rule is being issued, I, I honestly couldn't believe it. I could yeah. not believe it. yeah. yeah. Yeah, and and anyone yeah. listening to the show, not only do you have to put in place, you know, your r- records for um, outreach, resumes, interviews, hires, uh, putting together a survey, putting together uh, a means for self-identification, but the employment goal is an aspirational goal to work towards of 7%. Yeah. yeah. That's a big deal. Yeah, that is a big deal. It's a great deal. And it's <laughs> going to be a great, this is a great opportunity. I see this, actually, I should have said this to Andy. I do see this as a um, um, an opportunity for when for those vendors that are ending the sheltered workshop. Sorry. My when I see um, uh, opportunities for people to get jobs with federal contractors as they leave sheltered workshops and other sub-minimum wage uh, uh, employment options, this is great. So I, I, it's, it's, to me, it's great that it's sort of going hand-in-hand hand as we see some states like Massachusetts actually ending their sheltered workshop programs. Yeah, and you know well, what? I didn't think of that either, but you're right. Yeah. There yeah. you go. Yeah. That's something that is something that could, you know, present an opportunity for people that will help to end that and help yep. see them move out. Yeah. This is well, this is the competitive employment options that we want to see integrated competitive employment that we want to see for everybody. Yeah, right. I agree. Yeah. Um 
Well, Chris, you are now the executive director of the Disability Law Center in Boston. So what is the mission of this protection and advocacy center that, of course, as you already talked about, is part of the Disability Rights Network? But, no. but what, what about your group? What, what, what are you I'm, all about? Our mission is to provide legal advocacy on disability issues that promote the fundamental rights of all people with disabilities to participate fully and equally in the social and economic life of Massachusetts. So that's, those are the words, that's the mission statement that we came up with some time ago. But what it really means is that we take cases and we provide either legal, full legal representation or short-term assistance or advice to people with disabilities in a whole, you know, spectrum of things that uh, impact your life. So it could be, you know, we're talking to a parent about a special education case or, or a student who's experienced restraint and, and time out seclusion in the school that they're going to. It could be housing discrimination. It could be employment discrimination. We do a, a good fair number of cases that involve employment discrimination. Everything from advising a person with a disability on how to actually put a request for a reasonable accommodation into writing, what type of documentation to get from their medical provider, and to full-blown representation of someone who's been terminated because, um, because of their disability. Uh, we look at, you know, health care issues, benefits issues, you know, pretty much anything that, that is discrimination on the basis of disability we will um, take a look at. And so people call us. We go through an intake process, and we have a weekly case review meeting where we all um, uh, meet all of the staff to discuss what cases we uh, will be taking, and that's based on priorities that we set, which are on our website, dlc-ma.org. And uh, once we determine you meet the priorities, and then we talk about capacity. Do we have the capacity to actually take the case? So um, we uh, try and we really do try and help everybody that, that calls us uh, if it's something that we can do. Now, there's a whole host of things that we don't do, can't do, we can't represent you in divorce proceedings or family issue proceedings, um, you know, like custody and things like that. Uh, we don't, we can't do criminal work. There's a whole, probably a list of ten things that we don't do. Bankruptcy. So it doesn't matter whether you have a disability and you're experiencing that. We can't do it, but we can refer you to someone who can. And pretty much everything else we'll take a look at and at least give you our best advice on how to deal with it. And they can find you on the website? Yeah, well, uh, DLC, Disability Loss on a DLC-MA for Massachusetts.org is our website. And uh, this describes the work that we do, who we serve, what types of problems we can help with. Uh, we even have a section, what happens when you call DLC with a question of a pro or a problem. Uh, we, um, we have a weekly, I'm sorry, monthly uh, cable TV show called The Disability Connection. Does that sound familiar? And, yeah. uh, 
Hey, when, yep. when, when is that on? That's on uh, local. It's on the Boston uh, Neighborhood Network uh, TV, so it plays mostly in the Boston surrounding area, and that's on every month. And it gets taped, and, and, and it's done live. And we also have callers can call in during that time, and then uh, it gets, you know, shown throughout the month until we do another one. But you can see it on our website. So if you went to our website right now, you'd see Disability Connection, and you will see the latest show, and you can actually watch it. Uh, one of the staff attorneys, Walter Nunes, is the host. And, and it's all uh, different people that call in. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's very well, interesting. I mean, we that you, different, huh? Yeah, and they can see that by going to your website. What is yep, that website one more time? The website is DLC, www.dlc-ma.org. Before I forget... Is that how someone would make a contribution? Because I'm assuming that part of keeping things going is people making contributions, companies making contributions, but even individuals making contributions. Joyce, you know from other boards that you're on, fundraising is a huge part of of, uh, providing more services for people. So we do a good part of my job is finding additional funding so that we can actually help more people. That's, that's what it's all about. And we certainly uh, uh, do a number of things to raise money. Right now we're actually selling raffle tickets. We sell a limited number of raffle tickets. They're $100 a piece, but I encourage people to go in on one, and we give a prize of $10,000, and a second prize of 2500 and a third prize of 1000 and we'll be holding the raffle on November 20th. So that's one way that we raise money for the Law Center. We have a uh, annual event, and then we people, you know, give us donations throughout the year. And if you go to our website and go to the bottom of the page, there's a big green button that says "Donate Online." Click here. Uh, so um, there's lots of opportunities to to help us here at the Disability Law Center help more people with disabilities. Well, and, and no matter what, if you're listening to the show, and remember this show you can download from iTunes, but no matter how much you give, something is better than nothing. Something oh, absolutely. Absolutely. We are, you know, we are uh, thrilled to get any donation of any kind. Um, and, our, you know, obviously our, our website's fully accessible. And, um, you know, you, again, you can see everything uh, pretty much uh, that we do and how we do it. We also have a brochure that you can print out for, from the website, and we offer that in a variety of different languages. Uh, so, um, you know, I hope people take a look. And, uh, and, and make a be- contribution. I would urge you to yeah. make a contribution. Remember, folks, if you sit back, people with disabilities, and we say, oh, we want more. Oh, why don't you do this? Oh, what? you need money to do those things. Yeah. So, you yeah. know, take time yeah. to make that contribution. Uh, well, you Thank know, you Chris, I think you're brilliant and a fireball. So you must have got that somewhere from someone. So, you know, my question is, 
Who was your role model? You know, I you know, I, I would first and foremost have to say my parents. Um, you know, they were just great role models and and you know, how to behave, how to be a good human being. Uh, they raised seven kids, and um, almost every one of us is in a helping profession. We were, I, I think, raised to believe that, you know, no matter what you had, it, you were, you know, there was always someone who was less fortunate and could use your help, and you were obligated to do that. So, you know, as a kid, we were right, right I, probably at five or six, uh, my mother was um, developing volunteer opportunities for you, whether it was going with her from neighbor to neighbor to collect for the United Heart Fund or whatever other charity she was supporting. Uh, you learned very young that that, that was important work. And... Um, and again, I you know I I think that's that's where it all begins. So I would have to say they were they were great role models, in you know, in a number of ways. Yeah. Uh, well, I think obviously like, they were. If uh, if you all are doing all seven of you. Yeah. Who, who else? Um, I would have to say, um, really, you know, this is going to sound cliche-ish, especially coming from Massachusetts, but I would have to say, um, you know, almost anybody in the Kennedy family. So whether it's the senator, whether it's, you know, Ted Jr. now, whether it's, um, um, you know, Patrick down in Rhode Island, or uh, even the the youngest one that just joined uh, uh, as a congressperson from Massachusetts, Joseph Kennedy, um, you know, there's a there's a family that is just full of role models um, who were also raised, you know, the same way I think I was. Although, you know, they were certainly a lot wealthier than we were. Um, they, but their wealth didn't deter them, and still doesn't deter them from being advocates for people who need their help. And yeah, I just, right. I, That's yeah, true. I, yeah, Go I ahead. look at the whole family. I look at the whole family, and, and you know, almost to a person, they they grew up being taught this and believing that, you know, they're not better than anybody else. That they have an obligation to society. That they have to give back. And you know, that was that was what how we were raised as well. So. Um, you know, they could certainly sit back and uh, say, gee, I don't have to do this or I don't have to work as hard because I have a trust fund or whatever it is that I have. And yet they never do. And I just look at the youngest one, Joe, who just ran for Congress and won, and um, I think he's been in Congress about a year. He, it's, it's just amazing to me. I, you know, he went to college and law school with the idea in mind that he was going to help people. And that's what he's doing, and it's it's just they're they're a great role model for anybody. Yeah, and you know when people say that to me about well, yeah, they're very wealthy. My answer is well, first of all, <laughs> you know we need people with money to help, you know, to help uh, all of us and to help uh, foundations and groups such as yours. But may I say, they are giving 
and they are down to earth. Yep. My example is Ted Kennedy Jr. Yeah. You know, yeah. when I was in Connecticut, when he announced he was running for state senate, yeah. half of his speech was about disability. Yeah. At yeah. least half. Um, and, you know, he'll call me sometimes and he'll say, now, Joyce, you know, they're in Pittsburgh. I'd like to meet this one CEO. I mean, I don't want to impose on you now, but if you think you could get a meeting for me, and I'll say, do you remember who you are? <laughs> they would die to meet you. But, yeah, you know, yeah, that, is, yeah. that is how they are. That yeah, is. They are. They which are. I think is so great. It speaks volumes about them. It and, hey, we need someone of, in our corner. It actually speaks volumes of how they were raised. Mm-hmm. It does. And to, and to see that, you know, from Rose Kennedy on down, Every parent of, of these kids has, has raised them the same way to say, you know, you're not better than anybody else and you have an obligation because of your status in this family and money that you have an obligation to give back. Mm-hmm. And they give back in, yeah, in right. spades. <laughs> yeah. So. Well, Chris, you know, before I have a couple last questions, um, I was thinking the other day about, wow, you've done so much. For example, when Chris was the assistant director of OPM, you know, she was really the impetus behind uh, the the executive order for President Obama to hire 100,000 people with disabilities over the next five years. So, you know, when I think about, you know, all these things you've been done and involved with, um, and accomplishments, uh, even just being where you are as an individual. I, I wanted to ask you, of, what would you consider your greatest accomplishment? Oh, you know, there's a part of me that thinks of, you know, big picture-wise, you know, certainly the executive order on uh, increasing employment of people with disabilities of the federal government is a, was a huge accomplishment, and getting to implement some of that before I left D.C., working on the diversity and inclusion executive order in the federal government and getting that office up and running, those were, you know, some wonderful big-picture things that I did at EEOC, you know, the LEAD initiative, uh, leadership for Employment of Americans with Disabilities. We did a lot of great work, as you know, because you, you did a lot of it with me um, there as well. But, you know, I have to be honest with you. The, some of my greatest accomplishments are, are the little things, like, you know, advocating for someone to keep their housing here in Massachusetts and actually accomplishing that, um, you know, getting someone the accommodation they need in the workplace uh, uh, without them becoming without them becoming unemployed, uh, you know, helping them keep their job, things like that, those little things that mean so much in a person's life, um, you know, stay with me as, as great accomplishments. Well, you know... You had a big impact on me, which had an impact on people with disabilities. So I always tell people, remember, there's always someone watching. Yeah, you know, yeah. Um, just as you're saying, you know, when people say, I want to change the world, big picture, I say, well, 
You can't be the world to everyone, but to one person, you may be the world. Just like those examples that you just gave, to those people, you were the world changer. So, you know, um, and by the way, you do so many, and I think you're so great, and I'm so honored you would be on our show today, Chris. Oh, Uh, I'm honored that you would ask me, Joyce. Well, um, I wanted to ask you in closing... What message would you like to leave with our listeners today? I would like to leave a message of of um, of hope. I think that things are getting better for people with disabilities. I think uh, in the employment arena, as we look at what this administration has done with the executive orders and the you know Section Five Hundred Three. And, you know, for the first time, we're having a serious discussion about ending 14C subminimum wage, ending sheltered workshops. It's actually, we're seeing it happen across the country. I, I, I think it, there really is a message of hope, but people have to keep, they have to be vigilant. And I would hope if, if all of the listeners today are advocates, um, or even if they're not, they become one. And to make sure that people with disabilities have, you know, even just stick with employment, have the have equal employment opportunities that everybody else has. Uh, that would be key. You know, you and I both are big, huge proponents of of employment of people with disabilities and the changes that employment makes in that person and their families' lives is is you know just astounding. Mm-hmm. So we need to be vigilant, but there is hope. Things are happening. Yes. Well, moving forward with ending 14C and 503, who would think we would see that? You know what I mean? Yeah. Wow, yeah. big yeah. changes. Well, hey, we end uh, every show with a quote from a leader in America or throughout the world that is impacting lives. So... Actually, our quote today is from Chris Griffin, who said, We don't need Disability Employment Awareness Month. We need employment. This is Joyce Bender, America's Voice, where disability matters at voiceamerica.com. Talk to you all next week. Voice America would like to thank you for tuning in. Please join us next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time for another installment of Disability Matters right here on the Internet Leader and Talk Radio, Voice America.